For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, it's her tell show. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us on this Wednesday. It is the 9th of March. The year of our Lord 2022 continues to roll along with a world that is roiling in turmoil, but we hope you have a little bit of peace and happiness wherever you are across the street or around the world. Going to talk a lot of different things today on the program. Uh, Going to talk a lot about gas. We got gas prices going up. We got Russian gas flowing through Ukraine despite the war. We have the president has finally come out and said we're going to do something domestically about not importing Russian oil following the suit of our friends in Europe. We're going to talk about that story. Uh, Also, just because one world bad actor is doing something bad doesn't mean everybody else takes a vacation. A story about China. Once again, cybersecurity hacking into state governments. Uh, we know about the old OPM hack of years ago. They've done this for years. They're continuing doing it. And just because we're busy with Ukraine doesn't mean they're not probing us for weaknesses. We'll talk a little bit about China a little bit later on. At the end of the program, uh, in our segment where we try to talk about a little bit of good news, a horrible tragedy gets a bit of a positive spin on it as a, a young man was slain in senseless criminal violence and his classmates raised money for a new canine dog named in his honor to help protect the community. Great story. We will touch on that. Uh, Our friend, Michael Siegel, going to talk a little science, going to take a break from the politics a little bit. Uh, We're going to look out to the stars, talk a little bit about space, like we always do with our astrophysicist friend, see what's going on out yonder in the stars. Also talk a little bit of COVID here domestically and some of the other things he has going on. I love talking to Michael Siegel, one of the smartest men in the universe. And he will grace us with his presence on Herd Tell today. But first, uh, let's talk a little uh, domestic policy. Uh, folks, they're doing it again. We keep watching this movie over and over again uh, from our friends at Punchbowl News. Excellent newsletter. Highly recommend you sign up for it. Punchbowl News, they cover Congress, uh, the machinations that don't have time for a lot of the network news. Uh, government funding, reading from Punchbowl News, uh, government funding expires Friday. Hey, remember that? You know, continuing resolution to kick the can down the road, da-da-da-da-da, emergency funding, all that fun stuff. Uh, As in three days from now, two days now, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, and we still haven't seen the $1.5 trillion omnibus bill designed to keep the federal agencies open through the end of the year. Yes, folks, you read that right. They're going to pass a $1.5 trillion bill that they don't have all the way written yet, but it's going to be passed by Friday because reasons. More responsible government. The bill is likely to be thousands of pages long, reading from Punchbowl News here, and it will impact every facet of the federal government. It needs to get a vote in the next few days, yet top lawmakers and leaderships are still haggling. Now, we expect it to be released 
no later than Wednesday, but the timing is still unclear. Members will likely have roughly a day and probably less to review it before it's voted on. Again, 1,000-page-plus bill, $1.5 trillion. They're not going to even read it. They're going to write it. They're going to vote on it, and they're going to put it into law. We are a deeply unserious people. Uh, the House Rule Committee will likely meet sometime Tuesday night, Wednesday. This is, of course, Wednesday now. The panel will also likely to consider a separate bill on the new Russian sanctions. Also, they're going to take up a bill uh, for Ukrainian aid, which everybody agrees we need to do, but that's a separate matter. No one is sure what the legislation will look like either. If somehow the House doesn't get this bill out, it would throw the entire week and the next few months in Congress into flux. What are the outstanding issues? House and Senate appropriators are still trying to find a way to offset for billions of dollars in new COVID relief funding requested by the White House. The administration wanted $22 billion in new COVID relief money, but Republicans have rejected that without an accounting for the trillions of dollars in COVID funding uh, already approved. Congress is likely to greenlight around $15 billion. Uh, we have covered on this program that they dumped so much money uh, into these COVID programs, they can't even figure out where a lot of it went. States had to use it as usual, lose money. It's a freaking mess. But the story is, as always, we are once again legislating by emergency. We are waiting till the last minute, and we're going to do an omnibus bill. An omnibus basically means they're going to take a bill that they have to do, in this case, funding for the government, and they're going to slide all kinds of stuff that otherwise wouldn't get passed and or they wanted to vote on in the back end of it, and we probably won't find out what most of this is until the last minute, and they're going to vote on it without any of them having read it. This is not how a serious government operates. This is not how a serious people tolerates their government operating. And yet here we are again, $1.5 trillion bill, got to be done by Friday, going to get done by Friday because they don't want to shut down the government. They're going to write it, they're going to pass it, and they're not going to read the thing. It's all going to be written by staffers, and by the lobbyists, and by whoever has the powers that be at the time. There'll be lots of good stuff in it that is important, because they always put that in the front end. But the stuff that they normally could not pass, that we would normally haggle out, that a deeply divided Congress and Senate would have trouble passing, will get slid into the back end. And we'll find out about it later. There'll be ridiculous things. So keep your bearing. We'll try to read through it when it actually comes out. But the lesson is we just keep watching this movie over and over again, and we keep tolerating this from our government. They're going to legislate by emergency. They're going to legislate by fiat, by basically waiting, putting a gun to the American people's head or the legislative calendar against people's head in this case. And they're going to pull the trigger and pass another $1.5 trillion like it's nothing. We get the government we deserve, folks. And as long as we tolerate them doing things like this without budgeting properly, without good order, in our Congress and Senate. This is going to continue because they'll take the path of least resistance. And omnibus bills and legislating by crisis is the path of least resistance. It's also the path to ruin because we will never have a good government, an accountable government, by taking that path of least resistance. But we probably won't hear a peep about it because people are busy with other things. Shame on us. More Hurtel right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Uh, one thing that we have been saying is sanctions are all well and good, but if you don't deal with the oil and natural gas that flows through Ukraine from Russia, uh, you're kidding yourself because that's where Russia's money, power, and global influence flow through. Uh, President Biden yesterday finally 
uh, came out and said that we are going to do some banning, some restrictions on importing Russian oil here in America. This comes on the back of another story about how in the first 10 days of the war, believe it or not, Europe actually accepted more natural gas from Russia that pumped through Ukraine. And the Ukrainians were having to risk their lives to try to keep the gas flowing. This is, of course, on its face ridiculous. Now, in the moment, these folks had to do what they had to do to survive. We understand that. They were doing their jobs. They kept the natural gas flowing to Europe. But it shows the complexity of what's going on. Now, the big debate domestically over this issue is President Biden rightly said this is going to hurt us uh, commercially because it's going to raise gas prices. That's all true. Gas prices are raising. Uh, and he will try to spin it that it's not his fault because this is all Russia's fault. That's partially true. The other part of that, though, is gas prices were already rising because of policies. Now, we've talked about this before, uh, especially with friends like Jericho Hill and economists when they come on. Gas prices are a lagging indicator, mostly. Now, when a world event like the war in Ukraine happens, it'll come a lot faster than usual. But usually gas prices are a lagging indicator. We have some domestic policies from the Biden administration over the last year that was driving up gas prices. The Biden administration makes no bones about their environmental agenda. They want more electric vehicles. They want less fossil fuels. They're very proud of this. But the price of that, of cutting down on domestic oil production, is gas prices are going to go up. So yes, it is going to be the Russians' fault that prices are going ever higher, but they were raising anyway because of the Biden domestic agenda. And that goes back to the previous administration under Trump as well. Again, these are lagging indicators, not all the president's fault, but it's not all not his fault either. It's a complicated thing. Keep your head when we're discussing it in public. And it's fair to point out that folks that want less fossil fuels in the future, it's going to cost more money in the present because the technology just isn't there to completely change it all over right now. I know folks want it to be. It just ain't. So be honest with people. If you're going to go with less domestic oil production for environmental or geopolitical reasons, either one, it's going to cost people at the pump and people are going to notice. And it's not the elite folks and the rich folks and the political class that feels that the most. It's average Americans. Be honest with them up front about your policies. If it's going to hurt, it's going to hurt. You can make your case, but people are going to notice. And they don't want to be talked to like they're stupid about it either because they know what they're paying. And for the most part, they can get online and find out why. More Hertel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Been a minute, but he's back the most frequent guest on the Hertel program, Michael Siegel. That's Dr. Michael Siegel to you. Uh, bon vivant of the universe, uh, gazer of the stars, writer of all things COVID for Ordinary-Times.com and maker of viral videos. Uh, how are you, sir? I'm not bad. How are you doing? We're doing good. Um, let's start right there with uh, what's right over your shoulder there. That is a big chunk of moon stuff. I'm assuming we're going to call that an asteroid, perhaps. Am I using the right terminology here? Or? Uh, this is correct. Uh, the This is a graphic uh, artist concept of the DART mission, the double asteroid redirection test. And uh, what this is going to do is it's going to rendezvous with two asteroids orbiting each other and literally crash into one 
and see how we can redirect it. And the idea is to test the technology we would use to redirect uh, asteroid if it were coming towards us and uh, potentially having an impact. And this uh, just got in the news recently. There was an asteroid discovered in January, about 70 meters in size, so a Tunguska-sized asteroid that uh, initially was projected to hit the Earth in uh, July of 2023. But now we have a little bit more data, and it looks like it's going to miss us. So uh, rather topical for what's going on in uh, the world of astronomy right now. Now, we know we consistently have in the news uh, these near-miss asteroids who keep teasing us but never seem to deliver. As we know from the highly scientific documentary Armageddon, uh, the only way to solve these things is to send oil drillers and Bruce Willis into space and blow them up with a nuclear warhead that magically didn't have to be uh, programmed. But that kind of stuff isn't really real. I'm teasing you because I know how much you hate the Armageddon movie, and I love it so much uh, (laughs) because Michael Bay is the great filmmaker of our time. But uh, now that we've trolled that out, uh, why do we keep discussing this? I know it gets pressed because everybody's like, oh, an asteroid's coming towards us. They always miss because you guys actually pretty much know years in advance that they're going to miss and pretty pretty much by how much and that sort of thing. What do you think the fascination is with this? Is it just the end of times existence stuff or what is it? It's, it's fairly dramatic. And if, a, if we did discover an asteroid were on its way to hit the Earth, that would be a, a fairly large news development. Uh, the British press in particular seems to really like to focus on these, you know, this asteroid is passing us in our orbit. Well, asteroids pass us in our orbit all the time. That's not news. Um, but really, in the last 25 years, NASA has put in a tremendous amount of effort to identify near-Earth asteroids, ones that cross our orbit, and to start developing the technology if we needed to deflect one uh, to basically prevent the, uh, at at best, a massive catastrophe, and at worst, the uh, end of human civilization, if you had a really big one. So uh, I think that's the, the fascination, that this is one of those Armageddon scenarios that is not scientifically unrealistic. Asteroids have hit the Earth. Asteroids have done enormous damage, and uh, it is thankfully one that we can probably do something about. What one of the things I find fascinating when I read your stuff about you know astrophysics and astronomy is we are so stinking small in the universe. Like we're we're nothing. We're we're sand on the beach when it comes to the greater universe, right? But at the same time, there really is some stuff we can do here. We can explore. You know, we've got Voyager out past the solar system now. We got the mission you just talked about. We're going to crash into an asteroid on purpose. That's pretty cool. This is pretty cool stuff for the species. But I don't know that did the space race, did we just get spoiled? Are we just not paying attention? Because this seems like we've really accomplished some things here as the human race. And we just almost seem like we're bored with it. I guess. And it's one of those things where today's wonder is tomorrow's standard. You know, you think about the things we deal with every day. Uh, We get on a plane and we complain because it's late and a hundred years ago, people said, oh my God, you're flying through the air. And so these things that are amazing one day become routine the next day. And the Apollo mission, they talked about this a lot, how everyone paid attention to Apollo 11 when it landed on the moon. And by Apollo 13, they couldn't even get primetime TV because it was it was old hat. So, and in some ways that's good. Space has become part of our lives. It's become something that we're kind of used to and so forth. But in, you, know, you do sort of, wish that people would experience that wonder that we had the first time we did things and the second time we did things. 
Yeah, speaking of technology that we take for granted, um, just the fact that we can put satellites in orbit. And now we've talked to you before about Elon Musk and the Starlink system where he's putting thousands and thousands of satellites in orbit, which is a bone of contention. We'll talk about some other time because it's in a lower orbit and it's in the way of other things we're trying to do. But that hit the news recently because they sent a bunch of uh, Starlinks to Ukraine. We understand the war's going on. We've been covering it extensively. Is technology like Starlink, like, you know, private satellite networks, for lack of a better way of explaining it, into a crisis zone to keep the Internet going? How does that development fall for you? Because this is well within your bailiwick of, you know, the the stars and the uh, astrophysics stuff. Do you see this as a solution to a problem that we could actually do things like the Starlink into an, an active shooting war zone? Well, I think in this particular case, it, it is very important. I mean, in the old Soviet Union, they strongly believed that they could run people like they were blast furnaces, basically, that you could take a child from its mother at two months, get them in the education system, control all this, have the state control all the schools, have state control all the media and control what they thought and make them perfect automatons for the state. And let's remember, Putin's an old Soviet guy, so he believes this. And that didn't work. People, the mind, human mind is too flabby and vague for that to work. And Putin is still in that mode of thinking that he can control events through propaganda, through information. And you talked about this with John McCumber uh, on the previous show about, you know, the information war and so forth and propaganda. You know, we've sort of overblown their capabilities, you know, because Russia, influ- you know, we said Russia influenced the 2016 election. That's why Trump got elected, even though there were much larger issues than that. Or Russia influenced Brexit. And that's why Brexit happened, even though there were much larger issues at stake. And I think that the media noise on that sort of thing has blown up his capabilities. And we've seen those capabilities of controlling the narrative, of controlling the propaganda exposed by the fact that the Ukrainians can counter him with an ordinary citizen with a cell phone. And that's got a stick in his craw that he can't control the flow of information. So anything we can do to keep the flow of information free to keep that information flowing out of Ukraine so that he can't cut them off, he can't isolate it, he can't control the narrative, is good. Now, I have mixed feelings on Starlink, as you know, because those satellites are low. There's a lot of them. They interfere with astronomy and so forth. There's a danger of space debris and so forth. But having that system where it's the satellites are so numerous, even if he wanted to, he couldn't destroy them all. And so that, that does, in this particular case, have that use of keeping the inflow of information free, of allowing even small people with limited resources to counter his multi-billion ruple information operation to the point where Ukraine's controlling the narrative. And let's put those two things together, talking to Michael Siegel, our scientist friend. Let's put those two things together because one thing that I, you know, I'm a history guy first and foremost in my heart when I try to study current events, because I think that's the best guide we have going forward. It's not perfect, but it's the guardrails to keep things in between. This is one of those things where I don't know that people put the two things together, that all this technological explosion, how much of this technology came out of space exploration and the space program. And that, like they, they joke about things like microwave coming out of the space race that just changed the world. But this sort of stuff, Starlink, uh, cellular phones came out of late World War II. People probably don't realize that that's where that came from. Uh, this stuff all happens in a sequence. And our space exploration programs and our, you know, that's kind of been the bleeding edge of science in a lot of ways. That's led to a lot of this, hasn't it? Yeah, um, absolutely. That one of the things I, I tell students is that, 
you know, when you take an astronomy course or a chemistry course or a biology course or an engineering course, these are not separate buildings. They're all different wings of the same building. And the things you learn in one discipline can inform the things that we learn in other disciplines. Engineering has advanced a lot from astronomy uh, and chemistry and so forth. These all interact. And so the more knowledge you have in general, the more that's going to flow in unexpected ways. There was an argument during the Cold War that classifying technology hurt us more than it hurt the Soviets because preventing the free flow of scientific information slowed progress down. Whereas if you had free flow of information, our society, because it was open, because it had more freedom, could have a technological pace that Soviet Union could never match because they were strictly controlling the flow of information. And that's the thing about science. It flows in unexpected ways. There are discoveries made in one field that have relevance to other fields. And just to give one example that I've been involved with, we developed a part of an instrument for a spectrograph in South America that the manufacturer said, hey, you know what? This new technology we developed, this would be really useful for fighter planes to have much better and bigger heads-up displays. And so, you know, we think of technology as you want to develop a cell phone and you take steps A, B, and C there. It's not that linear. You take steps A and B to this technology, take C and D to this technology, and someone sees those two papers and puts those together in a new way and discovers something new. And while we're talking about the Russians, uh, talking to Michael Siegel, uh, there was a lot of complaining over the last, uh, what, since the end of the shuttle program that we were way too reliant on Russia's space program instead of building up our own. Now, that's changed some because we have SpaceX and other things. Uh, NASA's moribund Artemis program, which is kind of a cluster, but they are at least doing something now with Constellation and that sort of stuff. They have threatened, uh, the Russian Space Agency has basically threatened that there's going to be no more free rides with them because of the war and the reparations that we're trying to get back from them because of the war of aggression. Is, is this going to be kind of a wake-up call of, all right, maybe we shouldn't be in the space business with the Russians, especially with their current leadership, even though we've been relying on them in the past, where it was like, okay, we know they're not great people, but we can do space with them. Is that calculation changed now? Um, I think NASA and the space agencies are trying to keep this as far from the war as possible to try to maintain the spirit of cooperation in space. But certainly developing SpaceX, developing Artemis, that's going to give us capabilities where we don't depend on another country for this. And you know, that's always been a possibility that something, some political issue would come up and Russia could cut off our access to space. And having those capabilities where they can't make that threat, I think is not only good for us as a country and, and so forth, it's good for the spirit of cooperation in space, that it makes it so that th- making those threats is empty and there's no point in making them. Do you think that, because um, obviously SpaceX has is, is got a heavy lift thing they're working on now. They're talking about, uh, they're starting to talk about plans for bringing the ISS down sometime in the not too distant future. Do you think that cooperation will just kind of naturally grow apart anyway, even without the current crisis? Because like you said, we just seem to be having some disparative things here where, you know, SpaceX doesn't need to talk to the Russians to do their stuff. Do you think this is just kind of a natural evolution on top of the geopolitics involved? It's hard to say. I mean, China just put up their own space station. And so they've shown that, you know, one country can do it. It's certainly better when we have cooperation. And I think that uh, NASA and in particular has seen that the space program as sort of a 
way of establishing detente. You know, when they had the Apollo Soyuz mission, for example, showing that Americans and, and the Soviets could work together in space. Um, so it's it's very hard to know how things are going to go. I mean, we have no idea what the political future of Russia is and so forth. I think that given the challenges and the difficulties and the expense, the more international cooperation you have, the better. But at some point, if a country is a bad actor, you may have to just go it alone or with countries that are not bad actors. Yeah, I'm talking to Michael Siegel, our scientist friend, our stargazer par excellence at Ordinary-Times.com and elsewhere. He's also a teacher. When we come back, we're going to talk some more space. We're going to talk about his Thursday throughput feature. He's got some cool stuff in there, uh, including interview with the vampire through the stars. That's going to be fun to discuss. Lots more with Michael Siegel when we come back on Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're talking to our friend, Dr. Michael Siegel. Uh, he looks at the stars for a living and then writes about it in ordinary-times.com for us. He also makes YouTube videos about movies. Okay, you've done some funky videos about astronomy and pop culture. Uh, you've done romantic comedies. Uh, you've done Don't Look Up. Uh, you've done historical dramas. Interview with the Vampire? Now, I you're going to have to help me with this one a little bit. Uh, of course, the Anne Rice book everybody knows about. Uh, Tom Cruise playing a vampire, which some people would argue was Tom Cruise being typecast, but we could get into that at some other time. But what in the world does interview with the vampire have to do with astronomy? Well, you'll have to watch the video, but there is one scene in the movie that has some bad astronomy in it that has a factual error. And uh, I was just thinking about it the other day and I was like, oh, this would make a nice little video. And really, I use these videos you know, to talk about movies because I love movies but also to sometimes talk about the scientific principles involved and talk about how astronomy works, how we measure things, how we calculate things, how stars work and so forth. So often it's just a vehicle to uh, you know, give a, a sort of painless uh, lesson in astronomy, you know, sort of, sort of, just sort of some of the basic stuff that, uh, that we take for granted. Uh, just a, a little hint to your audience in this case, it's why you can't buy coconuts and other tropical fruits in Paris. Does it have anything to do with the French smoking underhanded? No. <laughs> okay, just checking. Uh, you make an interesting point, though, because we think of astronomy as kind of a specialized study, and it is. It's very intricate, astrophysics even more so, because you're, you're looking out past our planet and all that sort of thing. But one thing, the reason I like you doing that is because there is a lot of stuff in astronomy that just filters into everyday life and everything from, you know, astrology to how we keep time to how we keep calendars. Some of the earliest science we have recorded human history is people looking at the stars and trying to figure out why in the world the sun moves like that. It, it's just kind of ingrained in the human existence, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, just the days of the week are named after the five planets and the sun and the moon, the five classical planets. Uh, it's a little more obvious if you speak a romance language where the names are similar but that's where it comes from. The months of the year were originally designed around the lunar calendar, the phases of the moon. The year is designed around the sun moving around the earth. You know, these are things that we sort of take for granted. Astronomy was the most practical science when it was invented. It was a way to tell time. It was a way to know seasons. It was a way to know when to harvest your crops. It was a way to navigate and find your way over the surface of the globe. It's only in relatively modern times that it's become this sort of 
esoteric thing dealing with distant galaxies and so forth, but ultimately it's sort of ingrained into our culture and into the rhythms of life that we experience every day. What do you see the future of um, astrophysics and astronomy, the science? Because we've been talking a lot about science, but we've been talking about Earth-based sciences. We've been talking about coronavirus. We've been talking about things like this. Where's the future going with that? Because it seems like we're kind of we're, we're pushing the technological limit. Uh, you've talked about the new uh, space telescope that just went up and how much diff- it's different, but it's also a whole lot better than the old Hubble was. We keep pushing the technological edge, though, but do you see like big leaps coming or are we in a period of time where it's going to be incremental process? Where do you see the future of astronomy and astrology here in the next few years? Uh, well, the future of astrology, I can't talk about, but the... Uh, My fault, I said astrology and not astronomy. That's the, the astrology is that thing in the back of the TV. Now I'm dating myself. The back of the TV guide used to have astrology <laughs> in it. Astronomy, I apologize, sir. Go ahead. No, that's fine. Um, I, I just couldn't resist the joke. Uh, astronomy, the thing is, every time we think we're to a point of incremental change where we've solved most of the mysteries, we discover that we don't know we discover something new that revolutionizes things. One of the things I tell my class is the history of astronomy is a 6,000 year history of the universe telling us we don't know half as much as we think we do. When I was a graduate student, we thought we had this cosmology thing, you know, the shape and structure and content of the universe sorted. And then we discovered dark energy and we still don't know what dark energy is, even though it dominates the universe. we used to think that the solar system that we have was a model for what solar systems would be like. And then we discovered that they have infinite variety and so forth. So science has a way of telling you, oh, I think we've got it all figured out. We're just tidying up around the edges. And then you just drop off a cliff because it was something that you hadn't considered. There is right now a growing tension in our cosmological models, our models of how the universe as a whole that may reveal a whole new branch of physics. We don't know yet, or it may just be um, observational error. We're still uh, arguing about that and figuring that out. I think the big thing for the 21st century as we go forward for the next few decades is trying to find the evidence of life outside of our own earth, both within our solar system to see if Mars had life early in its history or Europa has had life at some point and looking at extrasolar planets. Our technology is improving to the point where we may be able to look at the atmospheres of planets in other star systems and see what's there and get a read on how common life may be in the universe. This was a question that if you'd said we had a solution 30 30 years ago, people would have laughed at you. I don't think anyone's laughing anymore. They think that this is something that is within our reach within the next few decades. Now, let's define that, though, because I because I read you and actually try to get into the scientific side of this so I can keep up with you and not be a total idiot on it. Um, when we're talking about defining life, though, when I when I say life in the universe, everybody starts thinking, you know, some humanoid type of alien species. But scientifically, y'all are looking at building blocks of life. You're looking at uh, simple bacteria. You're looking at simple cell structures. You're looking for foundations of water particles. This is kind of the stuff you're actually looking for. And there's a high probability that you can find it out there. That's why you're so hopeful of it. It's not we're going to find little green men. It's we're going to find trace evidence. Is that a good way to term it, maybe, of this stuff? It's, it's more than that. It's that if we were to find that, say, Mars early in its history had the beginnings of life, and then it died out. If we were to find that, for example, there were lots of planets in the universe that had atmospheres that were conducive to life, that would make, the you know, first of all, indicate we weren't alone. 
but also make the possibility of little green men more possible. There are 200 billion stars in our galaxy. And based on our current knowledge, we estimate there are tens to hundreds of billions of planets that are in the habitable zones of their stars. Getting a handle on how many of those planets are actually habitable, getting a handle on how many act may actually host life, gives us the information we need to know how likely or unlikely it is that we are alone in the universe. At, at some, is it just the basic theory though that like almost every somewhere in the universe there's always going to be those basic building blocks, or is there specific places you're looking? You're talking about those zones of habitability. Is there and is it one of those things where well maybe we need to redefine what we call basis of life for the outside of that zone, or is it just in that zone? Mainly, what we're looking for are things in that zone, since that's where we know life can occur. What we call the Goldilocks zone, the the area around a star where the temperature of the planet would be conducive to having liquid water. But certainly, uh, at some point, we will have to expand our definition. We found that even life on Earth can exist in fairly extreme environments at the bottoms of ocean vents and very acidic water that we ourselves could not live in. And so we are certainly going to be looking to expand that definition as we go forward. But right now, we try to look for life that's similar to us because that's the easiest to identify. So once again, we're coming back to like you talked with the dark matter, though, is so much as science is trying to figure out what we don't know about what we don't know, isn't it? Yep. The, the, there's, there's stuff you know you don't know, and there's stuff you don't know you don't know. And the stuff you don't know you don't know tends to be much larger. Speaking of things we do and don't know, you've been doing all the COVID work for us at Ordinary-Times.com, talking to Michael Siegel. Uh, we're two years into this thing. Where do we go from here? We just had a Super Bowl where nobody was masked. Everybody took their vaccine and they had a wonderful time. We just had a State of the Union with all the leadership of the country unmasked, vaccinated, tested with a few notable exceptions that wanted to get social media attention for not getting their 30 second swab. Where are we going? Because now they want another $30 billion to inject into COVID stuff. I think the mask discussion is pretty much over. Schools have listed it for at least the time being. I, I think just the population's done with it. What's the next step from where you're sitting? Because you've actually done the science on this stuff, not just the thrown around term science. You actually read it. You've been pretty measured on this thing. Where, where do you think we stand at it as of you know the beginning of March here in 2022? I, I think we are at a point where we're accepting that COVID's going to be around. And so the latest indication is that three shots of the vaccine or two shots and a COVID infection provide long-term protection, maybe for years. And so that plus maybe a booster every year means that most people will have pretty significant resistance. And at that point, you start asking, what are the trade-offs? You know, is masking, is social distancing worth it in terms of the prevention of death and suffering? And I think we've gotten to the point where we're saying, no, it's, it's not worth that. But I think going forward, we need to be better prepared for if a variant comes back for other diseases, there are other COVID variants out there, there are other coronaviruses out there, there's Ebola out there and so forth. And so I think while there are criticisms I could make of the Biden administration's response, I think what was articulated in the, in the State of the Union of kind of looking forward and having more testing, especially genomic tracing so we can detect new variants early and keep track of what's going on with COVID so we know if it's getting deadlier, if it's getting less deadly, how fast it's spreading, what the risk assessment is. I think that's the way to go uh, to move forward. And there's always, you know, people say, well, they're thinking about the politics. Well, there's always a political calculation in, in pandemic response. If 
you know, we were not going to do what China did, where we welded people into their rooms. That's just not going to happen in a country like the United States. So already there's a political calculus there. There's always that political calculus of what the country will put up with, how much damage you're doing to the economy, what trade-offs you're willing to make in terms of the negative effects of your prevention measures versus how many diseases and deaths you're preventing. With so many people vaccinated, with the dominant variant being less deadly, with now emerging from cold and flu season where people can go outside and be less exposed, I think that they are making the calculation that, okay, now's time to ease off, take it easy, take a breath, look back, see what we did right, what we did wrong, and plan for the future. And just to put a bow on this with our friend, Dr. Michael Siegel, we always appreciate him being on Hertel. That's why he's been on more than any other living human being, not just because he's one of the smartest men in the galaxy. Um, to put a bow on the COVID conversation for just for right now, though, is uh, you are on the academic side of the house. You know how to read all them academic papers that everybody else throws around online without actually reading. Uh, just for the common person, the common man, do you see on the academic side of this and the government research side of this, have they learned any lessons? Have they changed anything meaningful, do you think, for the next time? I think that they have. we have learned some lessons. The Probably the biggest lesson we've learned is that we need much better monitoring of what's going on, much better tracking, not just of infections, but of variants so that we can keep track of them, know when they're going on, know what we need to do. We need a much more proportional response so that we know all right, these are the rules when there's a lot of infections, these are the rules when there's not as many infections and so forth. You know, and it's hard to know what COVID's going to do. You can't predict mutations or variants or what's going to happen. But I think you know, there have been a lot of people and these are the people I generally listen to who have looked back and said, "All right, here's what we got wrong. Here's the lessons we've learned. Here's what we need to do for the future." And I think that's the conversation we need to be having, not so much throwing blame around it at both sides, you know, the sides that underreacted and the sides that overreacted, but saying, all right, what do we do right? What do we do wrong? What's sustainable? What will the American people put up with? And how does that inform our future strategies? Yeah. And as you've explained to me, and I want to use this as the bullet point for our conversation with Michael Siegel today, any science that doesn't admit where it's right and wrong and reviews itself, that ain't science anymore. So appreciate your insight on all this, my friend. Let folks know where they can follow you on social media, where they can get that great writing, where they can look up that interview with the vampire via astronomy. See, I said it right there that time, and I didn't even have to use the Blue Oyster Cult song for it. Let folks know where they can find you, my friend. Uh, basically, just go to ordinary-times.com. That's uh, where I, I do most of my writing, and it has links to my YouTube and uh, Twitter accounts and everything I write up there. That's uh, just, I, I like to keep things simple and go through one outlet uh, so you can find where I am. And we're very, very thankful to have him. He's the kind of people we love to have and to discuss things. He has great insight, good guy, and also a Twitter Supper Club member in good standing. We look forward to you getting back to cooking soon, my friend. I know it's been a little crazy at your house lately, um, but you do good work, sir, and we appreciate your time very much. Well, I, I, you're doing great work on the show. I'm glad to be on here. Yep. You're going to keep being a regular because you make me look smart. So talk to you soon, my friend, Michael Siegel. Talk to you next time, sir. All right. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Uh, we've been focusing on Russia and Ukraine and the ridiculous 
global catastrophe that is unfolding in Ukraine because of Russia's war of aggression. But we always have to be mindful that just because one bad actor in the world is doing something really bad that's dominating our attention, other bad actors are not resting on their laurels. They're still doing bad stuff, too. Two point China story from NBC News. Uh, hackers working on behalf of the Chinese government broke into the computer networks of at least six state governments in the United States in the last year, according to a report released Tuesday by cybersecurity firms. The report from Mandiant does not identify the, comp- the compromised states or offer motives for the intrusions. Well, we know what the motives are which began last May, but the Chinese group believed to be responsible for the breaches. Uh, APT 41, Act 41, I'm not sure how you say it. You can pick it apart however you wish. Is known to launch hacking operations, both for old-fashioned espionage purposes and for financial gain. Quote, while the ongoing crisis in Ukraine has rightfully captured the world's attention and the potential for Russian cyber threats are real, we must remember that other major threat actors around the world are continuing their operations as usual, said Jeff Ackerman principal threat analysis at Reston, Virginia-based Mandiant Incorporated. He added in a statement, we cannot allow other cyber activity to fall by the wayside, especially given our observations that this is a campaign from Act 41, one of the most prolific threat actors around. State agencies remain ripe targets for hackers, even as the Biden administration has announced additional steps to safeguard federal government systems from hacking. That is especially urgent. Concern in the light of the massive solar winds espionage campaign in which Russian intelligence operatives exploited supply chain vulnerabilities to break into the networks of at least nine U.S. agencies and dozens of private sector companies. In this case, the report says the hackers exploited a previously unknown vulnerability in an off-the-shelf commercial web application used by 18 states for animal health management. In addition, they exploited a software flaw known as Log4j, that was discovered in December and that U.S. officials said was possibly present in the hundreds of millions of devices. The hackers began exploiting the vulnerability within hours of an advisory that disclosed it to the public. And late last month, they recompromised two previous state government victims. The report said the hackers, quote, persistence to gain access to government networks, exemplified by recompromising previous victims and targeting multiple agencies within the same state, shows that whatever they are after, it is important. We found them everywhere, and it is unnerving. The same hacking group was complicit in the 2020 Justice Department indictment that accused Chinese hackers of targeting more than 100 companies and institutions in the U.S. and abroad, including social media and video game companies, universities, and telecommunications providers. Quote, through all that, some things remained unchanged. App 41 continues to be undeterred by the U.S. Department of Justice. Go figure. Indictment in September of 2020, said the Mandiate Report. The Chinese government in the past has described itself as a staunch defender of cybersecurity. Uh-huh. Kind of like, you know, Russia's liberating Ukraine by, you know, leveling cities and has dismissed U.S. accusations of hacking as, quote, groundless speculation. <laughs> Mandiate is being acquired by Google in a deal worth $5.4 billion, by the way, the company's announced on Tuesday. Uh, we'll have to get our buddy John McCumber back on. He's a cybersecurity expert for years and years and years. He can describe this stuff in detail. First thing he would say about this piece is he hates the term hacker. Uh, it's a nonsense term. It means one thing to some folks, means not much to cybersecurity people. What happens is there's vulnerabilities and there's threats and you deal with them accordingly. The problem with state level governments is they just don't usually have the resources, the wherewithal or the oversight 
to chase these things as fast as people and bad actors uh, that are looking to exploit these vulnerabilities can put them up. Now, one thing about China we know, uh, let's rewind in time a little bit, uh, the Office of Personnel Management hack, the OPM hack, one of the biggest uh, breaches of data in the history of the United States of America, where they got government and military records, millions of them. Uh, China's been doing this for years. They'll continue to do it for years. The reason they like to target uh, things like state-level governments, universities, gaming, they want that personal information, and they want trends, and they want databases to go through, and they want to do that not only for intelligence purposes, but also for untoward purposes, like being able to get into people's private information uh, in case they ever need to do something like mess with the banking system or mess with the infrastructure system. We all remember the Marathon Pipeline thing. You have malware attacks. They could source that out to third-party actors. And as John talked about last time he got here, the Ukraine war has not gone according to cyber plans because it turns out the Russians farming all this out to third-party folks. Some of those third-party folks didn't want to help them with Ukraine. China's a little different. They don't farm their stuff out nearly as much. They like to keep direct state control. And here we are. Something to keep an eye on. Uh, Just because one bad actor is busy doesn't mean the others are taking a holiday. In fact, they're not. They're busier than ever, especially when we're distracted with other world events. More Hotel right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. You know, we always try to end on something that gives you a little bit of hope. Uh, This is a little melancholy, but it's a bright spot in how people react to things. Uh, This is from the FresnoB.com. A new canine officer for the Fresno Police Department now carries the name Nick in honor of a 17-year-old killed in a senseless 2018 shooting, police said Tuesday. This is a little sad, but how we got here uh, gives you a little bit of hope for folks. And Nicholas Calls a San Joaquin Memorial student, was shot outside a home in the Fig Garden neighborhood on June 24, 2018, investigators said. A bullet struck Calls in the head, and he died four days later in the hospital. The violence rocked the neighborhood. His killer, 25-year-old Joseph Antonio Espinoza, was found guilty of the slaying last November. In the pursuit of Espinoza in 2018, officers used a canine to find him hiding, according to police. So to honor Calls, Classmates Bailey Feeney raised $28,000 and donated to the canine unit in March of 2020, according to police. It takes some time to formally train a new canine and its handler, police noted. They announced on Tuesday that a canine named Nick is officially part of the force with handler Matt Vincent, according to a Facebook post. Nick is a three-year-old Belgium Malinois. The life and name of Nick Calls will now forever be part of the FPD's canine unit, the post said. So this classmate went out, raised all the money for this dog, donated it. They trained the dog up, and now it'll police the community and hopefully prevent a repeat of what happened to calls. What a great story. Good way to we talk a lot about policing and responsible policing and the things that go along with that. Countries tore itself up over it a couple of years ago. So it's nice to see a note where somebody in the community got some senseless violence and spun it for a good thing stories. That'll do it for Hertel today. Thank you so much. Uh, the views and on YouTube and the listens and downloads on the uh, podcasting platforms are just going through the roof. We've had over a thousand just in the last few days. We're well over 10,000, pushing 11,000 sometime today on this program. That's just mind boggling. 
for folks that started out with just a dozen or so folks on the first few programs. So thank you so very much for watching on YouTube or any of the podcasting platforms. Keep sharing it. Uh, all of those platforms have a share button. It only costs you a click, but it's a big deal to us. Let people know how to find our program. Let them know where to find Heard Tell. Let them know where to find our little effort to turn down the noise of the news cycle and give you as good information as we possibly can. Uh, one other thing you can do for us, make sure you're subscribing however you're listening or watching this program. That way you don't miss a thing that we're doing and put out. You get Heard Tell every morning. You get the good talks every afternoon. You'll get the long form podcast when we do those. The back catalog is now well over 130 different pieces of information that you can listen to. It's quite a lot, and we're happy to bring it to you. Uh, leave a rating and a comment, if you will. Those also help people find our little program, and we appreciate you greatly for it. So wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.